everyone. Welcome to the latest, latest episode of Happiness and Humans. My name is Matt Phelan. I'm co-founder and head of global happiness at the Happiness Index. And I am here with the amazing Lara Agnin. How are you, Lara? I'm doing well, thanks. How are you? I'm good. Um, since we're going to talk about emotions, Lara, how angry are you at me that this is the second time we've recorded this? <laughs> <laughs> you know, you and I have had a nice chat. I, I cooled down during our pre- No, I'm kidding. I'm, I'm happy to chat with you again. Cool. Okay. So for all those Jack Black fans out there, there's um there's a song uh, called Tribute, which is a tribute to the the greatest song in the world, which they forgot. Um, <laughs> and this is Lara and I's tribute to our previous podcast that no one will ever hear. Um. So Lara, um, please introduce yourself. Sure. Um, my name is Lara Acknon. I'm an associate professor of social psychology at Simon Fraser University, and also an associate co-editor of the World Happiness Report. Cool. And um, Lara, first question as ever is what, what makes you happy so we can get to know you a bit? Sure. Um, I think a um, couple things. Um, one is my family. I have um, two little kids and a, and a husband and they make me really happy. We're actually getting a puppy on Monday. So I look forward cool. to welcoming her to the family. Um, but in addition to that, my, my two other um, perhaps less obvious interests are um, food. I really love eating um, many, many things. And to counteract that, but also um, bring me joy, I really enjoy running. Oh, brilliant. Fellow, fellow runner here. Um, yeah. Laura, um, a quick question before we get into the actual official questions. You, sure. you told me, which I thought was a really beautiful story about what got you interested in this stuff. Um, it was a you I think you were in your first lecture and your professor said something you didn't necessarily agree with and then you sort of went home and blah blah blah. But do can yeah. you remember the story? Yeah, I think during our last conversation, I was mentioning that, you know, early in my undergraduate classes, I, you know, like many art students, I came in and took a smattering, a smorgasbord of um, <laughs> a variety of early arts courses, um, because I didn't know where my interests and my passions would lie. And so psychology was one of five courses in my first year. Um, and at first, I, I I was lukewarm on the topic because um, we were covering a variety of information and um, there, there was this assumption, sometimes implicit, sometimes explicit, that you know the reason all this information was interesting was because it was supposed to be capturing most of human, you know, most how most humans behave. Um, and I remember thinking that I was the exception to the rule. I remember thinking that like that's not true for me. Ha! I'll prove them wrong. Um, and kind of, you know, and, and I was probably, you know, I, I think I carried around a chip on my shoulder for, you know, several weeks through the course, and I was angry and disappointed. And um, but then I think over several weeks you know, probably around midterm season, I started to realize as I sat down and reviewed my notes that, you know, maybe this wasn't too far off. <laughs> maybe I actually did. Uh, maybe my behavior was captured by a lot of these data points that I was reading about in, in my textbook and hearing about in class. And so I think, you know, through uh, over time and, and through lots of data, I started to, I became a convert. I became really interested and, and I started to um, become really intrigued by how we could study human behavior through a scientific lens. And um, eventually it became my major and, and kind of another love of my life. Wow. I just, I love that. I love, I love hearing how people got into the things that they become obsessed with. So thank you for sharing that my story. Um, can you tell us about your research on giving and happiness? Sure. So I've spent probably the last decade or so trying to understand the relationship between human generosity and well-being. Um, 
generally speaking in the data, there's this bi-directional relationship such that um, generous people engage, uh, generous people report enjoying um, greater satisfaction in life and higher daily levels of happiness. Um, and happier people also report engaging in more generous behavior. That was really intriguing to me, but I wanted to I, I wanted to understand this um, a bit more. And so when I was in graduate school, um, I started conducting some studies trying to understand um, not just not just whether there was this association out there in the world around us, but whether engaging in acts of generosity could actually make people happier. Um, and so several years ago, my um, my, my collaborators and I published this paper trying to look at the uh, whether engaging in what we called financial generosity or pro-social spending, which is simply spending money on other people as, instead of yourself, could lead to higher levels of happiness. And so, for instance, in one experiment, I went out in the morning hours on campus and recruited students for a study on everyday spending. Um, and if they agreed, they were given either five or $20 Canadian, um, we were in Canada, and they were given a small slip of paper with a spending direction. And it was pretty broad. Half of the people were asked to spend this money by 5 p.m. Um, buying a gift for themselves or covering their expenses. So it was what we called the personal spending condition. And the other half of participants were asked to spend their windfall by 5 p.m on what we called pro-social spending, which was buying a gift for someone else or making a charitable donation. Um, we called everyone that evening to see how they were feeling. Uh, and the research assistants were unaware of how people had spent their money. The participants over the phone completed a report of a validated measure of, of well-being. And what we found was that people randomly assigned to spend money generously were significantly happier at the end of the day. Uh, so we followed this up. That was published back in 2008, my goodness, so over a decade ago. Um, and over the last decade since, I, I've been spending a lot of my time trying to understand how universal this relationship might be. Um, for instance, we've studied this question by looking at data from the Gallup World Poll, uh, which contains responses from over 230,000 people in 136 countries. And we find there that the association between spending money generously, donating money to charity, for instance, is associated with higher levels of life satisfaction in most countries around the world. We've conducted uh, experiments, controlled rigorous experiments in rich and poor countries. And although the strength of the relationship varies, we see in every place we've conducted these studies so far, at least these, these giving experiments, people are happier in rich and poor countries when they spend on other people than on themselves. Have you seen, um, Lara, sorry to interrupt on that. Have yeah, you seen any no, no. cultural, although you've, you've seen the same phenomenon, I can say mm -hmm. it, have you seen any cultural differences per, um, that differ in each country? Yes, so certainly. So we usually continue, um, so the short answer is yes. I think people spend generously on other people in very different ways around the world. So um, for instance, in one study, we asked people to recall the last time they spent money on themselves or someone else, a sample in Canada and a sample in Uganda. And in Canada, people were, were um, describing times, for instance, that they bought a bouquet of flowers for their mother or chocolates for their partner or 
treated a friend to dinner. And in Uganda, sometimes people were doing the same. Um, a lot of people mentioned going for fried chicken or chicken that was a, a big deal. Um, but many people were also buying what they called airtime, which is like minutes for phone use. And in some cases, people were buying malaria medication. Um, and so I think the specifics of how people engage in generosity certainly varies by culture. But what I do think is universal is that um, we do this, humans around the world find ways to support others. And um, what more critically my work has been looking at is whether the emotional benefits seem to emerge in, in most places around the globe. And, and that is what we've found so far, even in young kids under the age of two. And um, most recently, we've been studying large samples of ex-offenders, people who have engaged in you know, high-level offenses, felony-level offenses over the past five years, are also showing measurable emotional benefits from doing nice things for others as opposed to doing nice things for themselves. Wow, and, wh and where did you do that um, That study? The, which one, with the kids or with the ex-offenders? Uh, ex-offenders. Ex-offenders, so that paper was published in 2019 and it actually contained four studies. Um, many of them were, there, there's a new push in psychology and in many fields to recruit large samples. Um, and so it would have taken us years. So in, in some of the study, some of the studies we had upwards of five, seven or 1200 participants that would have taken us years to do in person. So we were able to recruit people online. Um, but in another sample that we actually ran in, in the lower mainland of Vancouver, where I am in Canada, um, that was with, uh, several samples of at-risk youth. And so that was, um, they were from the community here. Right. No, it's fascinating because it's, it's a very recent story, but um, we had a terrorist incident in London on um, London Bridge, I think last year. Um, mm. and, um, there, there was a murderer um, that was on the scene um, and he basically conf uh, confronted and attacked the terrorist. Um, mm. But he was um, he's just been pardoned by the Queen. So he's had a royal pardon for, for saving so many lives. Oh, wow. Um, which is obviously a totally different um, type of, of generosity in action. But I just want yeah. to bring that up because it's very topical. The person's called Stephen Gallant. Wow. So, yeah, I just thought that's a, that's a very topical um, story to bring up on that, isn't it? Yeah, certainly. Very. That's a, a heroic action. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anecdotally. So oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, you go. I was just going to say anecdotally, it was very interesting as we were, you know, I'm a social psychologist, not a forensic psychologist who normally works with um, these at risk or offending populations. But when we ran the, this study online and, you know, we had recruited over 800 individuals with felony level offenses, um, just several of them, like over a dozen contacted me afterward just to say thank you for the opportunity to give. Many yeah. of them had noticed that, you know, this wasn't something they were able to do in their daily lives and, and were very grateful for the opportunity. So I wow. that. it's it's certainly not um, stopping a terrorist attack, but no, <laughs> they appreciated no. the opportunity to help others. I, I'm just, I, I really just am interested in that and how, and, and how we rehabilitate people as a society. And, and mm -hmm. We have a real strong emphasis at the happiness index that when you join us day one is day one your past is your past um but that's the, yeah again uh, that we could just do a whole podcast on that thing yeah um, very interesting. But, but let's have a um what i know this seems like an obvious question because you've edited it but but what is the world happiness report sure yeah so the world happiness report is 
it's it's a report that comes out annually now. I think it, this is the ninth year it, it will be coming out. Um, and it's a landmark survey of global happiness. It, it uses Gallup World Poll data primarily to rank um, and evaluate the life satisfaction as reported by people in, uh, I think, upwards of 150 countries around the world. Um, and so it's some, it, it, chapter two, which often includes a, a very thorough analysis um, and, and what many people come to see every year is how countries rank. Um, but there's a lot of information that just is basically tries to assess the state of the world happiness and predictors of it. It's published by um, the United Nations and um, through Columbia University and the Sustainable Development Sustainable Solutions Development Network. And anyone, anyone that's listening that wants to read it can download it for free and read it? Yes, it's available online. I think it's worldhappinessreport.net um, or .com. Or I think if you Google it, you will not have a hard time finding it. And it is freely available to download and read. Brilliant. I just like to remind people of that because there is such, there's such gold dust in there that I just <laughs> I love sharing that. So thank you. Um, so, Lara, emotions are your thing, right? Like they're, they're the mm -hmm. thing that you've sort of really got into. Um, mm -hmm. And I also put in brackets here, you, you introduced me to something called Broaden and Build. Um, yeah. But can, can you tell us about how you've got into emotions, why you think it's important, research you've done, what Broaden and Build is? Sure. So, yeah, I'm really fascinated by human emotions. I, um, you know, f following my previous story, once I got hooked in psychology, I started becoming very interested in um in my second or third year, I took a course on, on emotions and memory, and it captivated my interest. And I started to realize that, at least for me, and I think for many people, um, emotions are so interesting and fascinating because it's really what colors our human experience. You know, we're walking around making these decisions and having these interactions, and all of those are, you know, they're interesting and, and these contained ideas. But um, I think one of the reasons that they're so, one of the reasons they're so meaningful and important for us is because they, 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 motivate and generate these emotional experiences that really do color our lives. Um, and so I, as we were chatting last time and what I think is really fascinating is that, you know, the field of psychology and has offered many things on the topic, but one of the theories that I have been particularly interested by is um, the functional account of emotions, which basically argues that uh, humans experience emotion as this to motivate a set of coordinated actions in response to what's going on around us. And so for, I think, dating back to Charles Darwin, the, some of these ideas came to light. For instance, he described how disgust, which is a very clear, distinct emotion, um, is something that motivates us to escape or separate or distance ourselves from something that is spoiled or rotten. And so this emotion that, you know, if you encountered a piece of of spoiled meat or feces on the ground, normally what you would do is you would crunch up your nose and um, that kind of blocks your nasal passages from intaking uh, this unpleasant smell. If you had ingested something that was disgusting, you would expel it. If you think about the blech reaction, what's happening is your tongue is pushing uh, food or, or or stimulus out. Um, and so that's that's discussed, which I think is a very vivid example. But a lot of other emotions are thought to contain a coordinated set of, uh, of responsive and actions to what's going on. Um, but that leads to the broaden and build theory, which is proposed and, and discussed uh, very thoughtfully and elegantly by its creator, um, Dr. Barb Fredrickson at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Um, and she argues that um, 
over the years and decades that we have been considering the purpose of negative emotions, what's been sidelined is the consequence and reason and, and, and outcomes of positive emotions. And yeah. so her theory of broaden and build suggests that positive emotions also have uh, a set of outcomes that flow from them. Um, they might be more diffuse, but they are equally important and particularly over an expanded set of time. And she, she in her work has discussed and, and pointed out um, many, many examples that occur um, and kind of the, the main outcomes of positive emotions as she describes them is that they um, broaden our mindset in, in some very literal ways. For instance, I believe some research has shown that our visual field of, of attention broadens when we're in a positive mood as opposed to a negative mood. Um, but also our mind is more creative when we are in a positive mood than when we are not. Um, but also positive emotions seem to build positive networks and build um, kind of relational infrastructures that carry us beyond the here and now. And so if you think about the last time you were in a positive mood, you may have been more likely to interact with strangers, more likely to interact positively with existing relationships in your life. And the idea here is that you're, you're really facilitating relationships and building um, meaningful networks and communication styles that will carry you not just serve in the moment, but will be helpful in future days. So, Lara, on, on on that point, as, mm. as you know, in um, freedom to be happy. One of our one of the things that we discuss is around seeing emotion as a data point and mm -hmm. not not blocking emotion out of work. What, mm -hmm. what what do you think the ramifications of, of that type of um, theory and research is on the workplace? Like, because that's quite fundamental stuff to business when you're talking about broaden and build there and 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 creativity and things like that. Um, mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, in short, I think my um, my suggestion is that I, I think emotion is a data point. I think emotion, by the very title of that theory that I just discussed is affect, emotion is information. It's designed for a purpose to inform our next our, our response patterns. And so I do think it's wise to pay attention to emotions. Um, and and kind of learn from what they're you know what they're trying to direct us to. Now, sometimes not in every situation is it probably it, will it always be the most meaningful and tactful response, but it's certainly information um, that is that, that is trying to serve an important goal. Um, and just as you mentioned, I think the broaden and build theory offers a really strong logic and motivation for trying to build positive emotions in the workplace. I think um, there are many organizations that want their employees to have um, creative ideas and think about creative solutions um, and think more broadly about how a product or um, whatever they're working on might be applied in the real world. So I think creativity is important, yeah. but also I think it, it facilitates these relationships within the workplace, which probably make work a lot more enjoyable, um, but might also just be a, you know, a positive outcome for workers who are there and, and want to remain. I think that that, posit that having a positive out, a positive experience of, of certain people of certain background raises a really interesting question when you put that theory together as well. Because um, just to give you an example, when I was at the, um, at the human conference in Copenhagen last year, there was a professor which really annoyed that I can't remember his name. Mm -hmm. But his main his main talk and main argument is that we always that one of the most important things in the entire world is science fiction, and mm -hmm. um, and the reason he felt that is because it allows you to have theoretical conversations without offending particular groups of people. So mm -hmm. 
if we take like if we take star trek as an example and we applied it to that theory he would say if we take klingons which are a fictional group uh fiction fictional group if you've only ever had negative um associations with 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 klingons but then one turns up at your at your office to be interviewed you mm -hmm. are going to you are probably going to subconsciously put um some kind of negative bias into that interview um and it it really make it really makes me think when you start putting these pieces together around how important it is to have to to experience different types of emotions with different types of people because if you come from a very sheltered background or or only seen one type of person it's going to influence how you think about people in the workplace potentially mm -hmm. yeah well I, I i so i am not a star trek buff so i, <laughs> I hope that that example wasn't lost on me but i but i yeah i think experiencing a range of emotions is is healthy and normal and i think emotion is information i don't think it should be ignored um but i also think you know given what we said before about the broaden and build theory is espousing and kind of motivating these positive outcomes um i think th that might also open our minds to more fruitful interactions with other people when we're in a good mood we even if we encounter someone who may be from a, a group that we have negative stereotypes towards um given all the data suggesting that happiness bolsters positive um, and kind behavior, I think we're much more likely to see a positive um, and fruitful interaction than if we were, for instance, in a negative mood when encountering that person. And so I, I, I do think emotions are valuable and I think um, they might help facilitate perhaps more positive interactions um, in our day-to-day -day lives and in the workplace too. And I think, Lara, I mentioned this before the call, but like the emotional part of the book has raised a lot of emotions in people. Mm -hmm. um, and, and just as you were talking, I think seeing, I think you're so right, just seeing is because data is a word that can sometimes confuse people, mm -hmm. but just seeing emotions of information, I think mm -hmm. is a clearer way of saying that. And also, although I come from a data background, if we take customer information as, as an example, mm -hmm. you don't have to accept or believe all information. You just have to have it there. Because, and, and I think customer service is a good example of that because the customer isn't always right. You can have a really rude customer Mm -hmm. um, that you may be collecting all your information from, but actually you might want to ignore it because that customer was just an idiot. Mm -hmm. uh, and just like your emotions, sometimes your mm -hmm. emotions may be incorrect and you reserve the right to ignore it. Um, mm -hmm. But I'm just building on that. Um, so on the, on the next point, just to, just to go back to the World Happiness Report, mm -hmm. in, in, your, in your opinion, what is the most significant data in, in the World Happiness Report? Um, well, I, I think... Two things always strike me every time I read the report. One is just like the sheer scope of um, the data. It's really amazing to see how many people around the world evaluate their life and are able to report their life satisfaction. And so I find that very humbling uh, and very interesting. But the finding, and perhaps I'm a little bit biased here given my research interests, but the, the finding that I find so intriguing year after year is now um, in chapter two, as I mentioned before, it's it's kind of one of the, the key kernels in the report every year, which is where um, a few of the editors analyze the existing most recent data and try to understand where countries rate in, rate in their happiness, but also what are the key predictors across the globe. Um, and for the last several years, one of the top seven predictors of life satisfaction has been identified as, as helping other people. Um, and so I think that's just... Um, to, you know, I, I guess I'm not surprised by it, but I'm always 
thrilled and excited to see it at this level and this scope. I don't, I think it takes what was originally this granular little um, idea and has kind of highlighted its importance at such a global scale. And so knowing that there's this robust association between generosity and well-being around the globe, I think is, is a pretty wonderful, um, beautiful take home message. Yeah, I love that. Any, anything else that, that springs to mind? Um, well, each year the report changes its theme. And so um, I, I think you, like, I guess it's hard to it's hard to give um, uh, an answer beyond chapter two for year after year because the the content changes. Like last year, it was focused on um, cities and um, like more granular level information. And this year, the the feature will be on COVID um, and how it has impacted the world and its well being. Um, and so I think that the message changes, uh, at least the context changes from year to year. Yeah, no, that's a really good point and and, and actually really useful. Um, because that, yeah, that is so important. Um, what was your biggest surprise in the data when you were editing the report? Um, well, so I um, probably when I think back to the, at least the chapter that I wrote a year or so ago um, was the the finding that despite the large and growing body of evidence that giving leads to happiness um, is still this, um, it still seems to surprise people. It still seems to, um, I, well, maybe this is a better way of putting it. People don't always anticipate the emotional rewards of generosity in advance. And so when we ask people what they think will make them happier, spending money on themselves or others, um, I think in a broad sense, people have an inkling that kindness makes them feel good. But when push comes to shove and we ask them about their specific decisions, people often um, default and say they'd be happier doing things for themselves. And so um, I guess I am repeatedly surprised uh, by what I think is, is kind of an error or an oversight in people's um, understanding of their own emotional consequences or their own emotional reactions. Yeah, no, I, th I think that's such a good point. And, and sometimes, it, it gets late, even when people do kind things, it can get, I don't know if this happens in Canada and the States as, as much as it does in the UK, but sometimes if people do, do try to do a lot, they get labeled a do-gooder. They say, oh, that person's a do-gooder. And you think, why, why does that, why does it have to be a bad thing if someone wants to go out of their way and help people? Yeah, that's that's interesting. It shouldn't be a derogatory term. In fact, that should be a compliment. You'd think that having a positive reputation for helping others would be a lovely thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's intriguing. I guess, do, do people ascribe negative mo motivations to someone who's a do-gooder or are they just kind of question? They're there, there's, a, there's a cynicism sometimes. Oh, that's... Which, it, which maybe it comes from people who are, uh, are wondering, is that person doing it for another reason? Um, mm. But maybe that's just because they don't know the reason, the fact that actually it makes you happy. So maybe, yeah. the, maybe the most selfish thing that we could all do is go and help lots of other people. That's true. There's actually some really interesting research uh, out there on it. it uh, there's a theory or an idea called the norm of self-interest uh, that basically suggests that there is such a powerful norm out there, at least particularly in North America. But I wonder, I, I suspect it, 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 it's 
widely accessible in other very westernized and individualistic nations around the world, that it's almost, that there's this high expectation that we are after our own self-interest so much that it raises questions sometimes about why people are doing kind things for other people, such that sometimes people will forgo opportunities to help others even when they want to, if it looks like there's no opportunity for self-gain. Um, and so, you know, sometimes you, you see people um, like there have been opportunities or, or experiences where like, I really want to help someone, but I, you know, you can imagine that people might question why I'm doing it. And it's almost, I feel compelled to ex explain a, a reason it would be helpful for me. Um, yeah. Like we've been really, we've been really trying to do our part uh, physically distancing from other people here. And I feel like sometimes we get a little bit of resistance <laughs> for that. Yeah. Um, and part of me is explaining that, you know, th there have been times where I feel compelled to explain, well, we have little kids and if rates, you know, if, if COVID rates escalate too quickly, they're going to be closing our schools. And I don't know what's going to happen if my kids need to stay home. I'm not up for homeschooling. And so I almost need to lace my pro-social interests here with self-interests for people to not um, not think oddly of me. Yeah, no, it's so interesting. It, um there's a, a journalist in the UK called Ian Hislop. Who, mm -hmm. He's got like a satire program. Um, I've just checked it out if people want to watch it. I'll just read it out. Ian Hislop salutes the unsung heroes of Victoria and Britain who improved cities, housing and working conditions and invented the concept of public service, mm -hmm. um, which is, I think, where the, where the, where the phrase do good has come from. Mm. Um, so yeah we've definitely gone on a segue on that we've definitely yeah spin it up on that one but interesting <laughs> such interesting conversation yeah um, okay so last question um mm. if there's lots of listeners here um that that are reading the book that, that are part of the happiness in humans community on slack and they're trying to build a business case for happiness um mm -hmm. in their organizations What's the what's the one bit of evidence or data you would recommend citing in in your business plan if you were a HR director or a CEO going into that that meeting tomorrow? What's the one little nugget that you would have in your back pocket? Yeah, so I I think we chatted about this last time, and it's one of my favorite papers. It's it's long and thorough, um, which you know doesn't make for like a quick afternoon read but i think would really um make a strong case to hr um and this is it's a review paper in one of our field's top journals called psych bulletin i believe it's it's in there it's a paper by um sonia lubomirsky laura king and ed diener and it's um it's basically a review paper that accumulates a ton of evidence to show that happiness doesn't just follow good events. We often think we're happy because good things have happened to us, but the paper actually also makes the reverse case, which is that um, happiness brings about a bunch of positive things. So mm -hmm. it brings about workplace success, relational success, marital success, um, there's also evidence suggesting that I mean it's it's correlational, but it's 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 intriguing and surprising um, that it also is, is predictive of greater longevity, um, less employee turnover, and a bunch of things. And so um, I think that's very strong ammunition to make the case that companies should be taking happiness in the workplace very seriously, um, not just because it's a marker of success, but because it will likely bring about more success. Well, Lara, um, I hope I hope Jack Black, Tenacious D, and Tribute are impressed with my. <laughs> I have enjoyed this even more than the last time. <laughs> so, I hope you did it justice. 
Yeah, I and I deep down, I think that I accidentally deleted that podcast. So the guilt is <laughs> that my Catholic guilt is inside me right now. You're coming um, clean now, huh? Yeah, and, and all I want to all, all I want to say on behalf of both of us, to, um, on behalf of our listeners, thank you to you, Lara, because we've all learned so much. Um, and I, I, I felt this every time. I think we spoke three times now. I just the, the energy for what you do just absolutely comes across the airwaves, and it just inspires me to want to, e to even find out more stuff. Um, oh. I'm, I'm sure that would have been passed on uh, on to our listeners. And the message from Lara and I is that we want everyone to go out and be really selfish by helping lots of people. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, Lara, thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you for having me again. No worries. <laughs> Catch you later. <laughs> Cheers. Bye-bye.